hey, you're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and our role models. The podcast is a production of Young Clergy Network, a ministry of OKC First, committed to listening to, collaborating with, and empowering young pastors over at youngclergy.net. Anyone can join the network for free over at our website for access to online resources and the latest updates. You totally want to join us. Today's episode is sponsored by Tom Ord and Josh Broward, the editors of Renovating Holiness. You can find the book over at Amazon.com or email Josh at jjbroward at gmail.com for group discounts, more information, and their free discussion guide. Today on the podcast, we're with Pastor Alicia McClintock, Associate Pastor at Crossroads Community Church of the Nazarene in Palo Alto, California. Thanks for everything you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack, and I'm here with my guest, Alicia McClintock. Alicia is the associate pastor at Crossroads Palo Alto Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So excited to be here. Yay. So the first question I ask everyone is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, though not in the same way that most people mean when they say they grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. Um... My parents didn't come to know God until they were adults. Uh, They were just starting a family. um, And really, there was just this neighbor family that thought that when Jesus said, love your neighbor, he probably meant love your actual neighbor. So they befriended my parents, shared meals with them, swapped babysitting nights, um, shared the gospel, invited them to church. So anyway, my parents came to know God and they just knew that Jesus had changed their lives. They didn't really have any church background. Like my mom was confirmed Catholic as a kid, but never went to mass, like that sort of thing. Mm. So had no idea about denominations or theology. They just knew that Jesus had changed their life and that their friends went to this church. So they started going and really sadly, unfortunately, like those friends moved away. And then that church that they were going to um, was rocked pretty hard by a pastoral scandal. And so they ended up really hurt and confused, like not sure where to go. And that's when we started going to the Church of the Nazarene. They loved the preaching, really trusted the leadership, like felt really moved by the spirit and worship. Um, We loved the kids programs, my siblings and I, and they loved that we loved it. Um, So they just found a place that was warm and welcoming, a place of healing and growth for them. So pretty quickly, our family got super involved at the Church of the Nazarene. This was like the first in their kind of spot of church shopping. They never looked anywhere else. They just kind of (laughs) stumbled in and and loved it. and, and so did we. So that's that's the church that they still attend. They're members there. They've both served multiple terms on the board. Like, they're deeply committed to that particular community. Though I don't think that they would self-identify as Nazarene in particular. They're more broadly kind of evangelical. They've got such a sweet ecumenical spirit. Like, my mom is convinced that God is at work everywhere all the time. And, and that's, that's really powerful. But I always found a home and a family in the Church of the Nazarene. Um, I went to Point Loma Nazarene University and um, found myself caught up in 
the story of the church calendar, the liturgy of Advent and Lent. Um, I started attending Southeast Church of the Nazarene in um, an urban poor part of San Diego. And I was like, if this is what being Nazarene is about, then I'm about this. Mm. <laughs> I had also like come to know the global Nazarene family as I was doing some global church work um, in Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I just fell in love with the Church of the Nazarene. Hmm. Um, so after college, I did a brief stint in a non-denom church plant and kind of through trial and error realized, yeah, I'm just really Nazarene <laughs> um, in terms of like, I just so I just so appreciate um, our like congregationalist roots and uh, like obviously the ordaining of women, like globally compassionate. Um, Anyway, so as I discerned a call to the ministry, I knew that the only place for me was the Church of the Nazarene. So I've been pursuing ordination, working on my Master's of Divinity. Yeah, so I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, but I'm probably the only one in my family who claims a Nazarene denominational identity. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of kind of funny. I love that. Um, kind of tell me about the your call to ministry. Like, when did you first sense that you might have a call to ministry? Yeah, um, I've actually found the the calling of Samuel uh, to be a really helpful story to talk about my own calling. Because mm. um, the thing is, I have always loved the church. Like, because my parents became Christians when um, my brother and I were really, really young, um, I don't have any memories without church in my life. Um, and I have always felt the most myself, the most at home, um, the most welcome in church spaces. Mm. Uh, and I realize that's kind of unique for, for a lot of people, but I've always just had this deep-seated love for the church. And I just was always showing up any chance that I had. I just wanted to be there. Even now, like the best friends in my life from um, middle school, from high school, they're all church friends. They're Aww. just people who I knew from church. So I, I also, at the same time, like always thought I wanted to be a teacher uh, mm. ever since I knew that was a thing. I was the, the kid who tricked my siblings like when we were playing games and stuff to play school. Like I just sort of figured out a way to make that happen. Um, and, and everyone was always really encouraging about that. Anyway, fast forward to post-college. I'm in graduate school working on my master's in English and comparative literature because I wanted to be um, a professor. And so I'm climbing the academic ladder, looking forward to PhD, tenure track teaching position at a university. I'm at this place in my life where I thought I'd finally begun to arrive. I'd finally begun to make some progress on this dream job that I'd always wanted. But in some significant ways, I was deeply unsatisfied. All I wanted to do with those kids was to sit down with them and to talk to them about what they were learning and how they were growing and what God might be saying to them. And having to grade and evaluate them was crushing my spirit. Mm. It was so, so tricky. And at the same time, like in that in that church plant that I was a part of post-college, I was leading and writing and teaching in ways that I'd never considered were an option for me mm. in church. Um, I just had, it, it just had never occurred to me. I had my sights set such tunnel vision on the teaching gig yeah. that I hadn't considered I could bring those skills to bear in the church world that I loved so deeply. Mm. Um, so I, 
at the same time that I'm kind of realizing all of the things I love about teaching are actually about discipleship and shepherding and pastoring, I'm being given more and more opportunities to explore that at church until this this one kind of crucial moment in the summer of 2013. There are a few things kind of coming together where I, I sort of had this flashback epiphany moment where I looked back on all of these events in my life and I realized like the church is the thing I've always been called to. I just didn't know it. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, where the story of Samuel is really helpful. Like he keeps showing up to Eli, like, here I am, you called me. And Eli's like, no, I didn't. I didn't call you. Oh, it's God. It's God who's been calling you. Mm. And that's how it worked out for me, where I realized that God had been the one whispering to me the whole time. Um, and it and it had been a call to to preach and a call to pastor. And then since I deeply love the Nazarene church, I knew that that's where I wanted it to be. I wanted to be a Nazarene pastor. Mm, I love that. Um, Tell me about the first time you ever preached. What was that like? What happened? I I first preached when I was a senior in high school. I went to a a Christian school. I'm the product of Christian education. Again, just deeply love the church. I could (laughs) not get away from it. Um, I was a senior in high school and part of our like senior project was everyone preached in chapel. Mm. Um, and I was the only one in my class that wasn't freaking out about it. I was like, I've got stuff to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I just like, I remember, this is one of those moments where I look back and I poured so much time and energy and effort. I was up late reading the Bible, scribbling on lined paper, just kind of putting together, yeah, what God was putting on my heart. Mm. Um, yeah, so it went really well, preached. A, a, again, a, just the sense of peace, like I knew I had something to say and I knew that that God was putting it on my heart. So um, I'm the kind of person who at that point in my life was pretty debilitatingly shy and like hated public speaking. So that was a significant, I wish I'd paid more attention to that at the time, just how unnervous I was considering how nervous I should have felt mm. um, in that moment. And then I had invited my youth pastor at the time to to come and hear me preach. And he did. And he was like, we got to have you come and preach at youth group. And so did that too. Yeah, so had been preaching, I guess, since yeah, since I was a teenager. That's great. <laughs> kind of tell me about the place where you are right now at the the Possibility Project. Yeah, so I I'm in a really unique juggling act, kind of with ministry stuff. I'm associate pastor part time. I do about 20, 25 hours a week at Crossroads Community Church in Palo Alto. Okay. And then I'm in seminary part time. I'm doing about two classes a quarter and I'm about halfway through my Master's of Divinity. And then also in conjunction with all of those things, I'm a part of this residency program called the Possibility Project. It's a reorganized Church of the Nazarene, uh, Sunnyvale Church of the Nazarene closed, they sold their building, and then we reinvested the money in various places throughout the Northern California district, mostly in um, buying back like some church debt, 
from like other churches in the district and then reinvesting the money also in parsonages around the district so that we could um, provide housing for young, enthusiastic, ministry-minded folks who need a place to live and a place to plug in. It's really born out of uh, a lot of us are alumni from Point Loma Nazarene University where their motto is to teach, shape, and send. Mm. Um, I think where Point Loma is really good at the teaching and shaping, um, but there ought to be a receiving end for that sending. And sure. we say, here we are, pick us, send send your creative, thoughtful, ministry-minded um, folks who want to change the nature of the church, send them to us. We want to welcome them home. Mm. Uh, we want to give them a place to serve. We want to empower them and uh, urge their imaginations to dream of something bigger. Mm. Um, so the Possibility Project is basically a reorganized church or we're a sort of house church model. Um, we meet on Wednesday nights as a, a large group for discussion and discipleship. We usually read a book a month and, and we try to apply that that knowledge to some particular applications, um, whether that's like curriculum we're creating or like a service project that we engage in or, or various kinds of things. But that's our kind of discipleship space. And then Sunday nights is our what might be closer to like a, a service. Uh, we share a meal together. It's it's our time of communion. We bookend our time with a song and a prayer. Mm. Um, and and there's sometimes like a testimony or a, or a teaching, a, a brief reflection. Um, but that's the sort of nature of our of our gatherings together. And then we live in community. So there's a, a house of women and, uh, and a house of men. And we we just deeply share life together. So uh, reorganized church with community minded, um, missional focus. Yeah, it's been a really great place for me to incorporate all of the things I'm learning in seminary and in ministry um, to be a kind of pastor in residence uh, among those those interns, the, the residents of the Possibility Project, but then also to take the things I'm concretely learning from life in intentional community into my seminary classes and then into my into my church ministry uh, and to continue to build those bridges between uh, the deep love I have for the traditional church and this opportunity to do something new and fresh and to see a fresh movement of the spirit and what church could look like and could be. Mm. What kinds of stuff are you guys doing there at the, at the Possibility Project? All kinds of things. One of our residents, Katie, has done a lot of significant work with global church work. She wants deeply to see creative people find a place to serve in the church. I think we're really good about asking um, people with practical skills to help out, like with the church landscaping or with plumbing or whatever. Like we're really good at those kind of practical skills. But the thing is, particularly here in the Bay Area, we have so many creative individuals, like people who are photographers, videographers, web makers, like all of these things. And we're not very good about asking them to contribute their highly professional skills to the life of the church. and then on the other hand, we as the Church of the Nazarene have such such a huge presence in global compassion. Uh, we have so many missionaries who who need some of those creative skills. Like there's got to be a way to build those bridges and to bring those people together. So Katie has launched a, a nonprofit bridge building ministry to connect like creative individuals like photographers, videographers, writers, etc., to ministries and uh, global church work uh, around the world so that, um, yeah, she's sent teams to 
uh, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Sierra Leone, India, uh, Sri Lanka, just around the world, just to help missionaries, people doing like exciting, significant missional work. uh, And they need help telling their stories. So she's passionate about sharing those stories uh, in a beautiful and compelling way uh, Mm. with the help of the creative professionals that we already know. Um, so that's that's really exciting. It's a, a great thing to be a part of. Um, we do so much pulpit supply. Um, we really believe in in the power of um, well, we really believe that we're a kingdom of priests and mm. that everyone who is a faithful follower of Christ can can preach the gospel. Mm. Uh, so I think all of our interns have preached at least once in at least one church, though um, so we've done some significant amount of work with pulpit supply in our district. We also have furnished like camp speakers for our NorCal district camps. I personally have I did middle school camp last year and I'm speaking at high school camp this year. So it's just great to have a repository of young, excited people who are able to, to infuse life in, into, into churches. It's also, that's also a really great way that we've um, featured more, more women preachers in our pulpit supply. If we can tap folks like me or Katie or Megan or Liz, like other other young women, if we can tap them for pulpit supply, that's another chance that another church gets to see a woman preach the gospel from the pulpit. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've done some work with that. Right now, we're in the middle of some tough and useful and and really good conversations about uh, the church and sexuality. Mm. Um, so we're still working through like what exactly that conversation um, can bring to bear on our wider church discussions, but mm. we just know it's it's an area that we need to be better um, about talking about. Like we need a, a more well-developed language. We need a more well-developed holistic ethic. We, we just need to be able to be better about that. So we might as well start talking about it in our community and see if that can be useful or helpful, uplifting to the broader church community. Yeah. And what a great gift to your district to have the opportunity to to have um, young people come and speak kind of a, like a list of names essentially that they can just call you guys up and say, Hey, do you get, do you have anybody that can preach next week for so-and-so cause he's sick or I just think that's a really cool resource to your local churches. Yeah, it's and it's so exciting for us to be able to be part of that that glue in a sense as we start to encourage more district collaboration. Yeah, that's another thing that's going on right now. Megan is really working to revamp our district youth ministry um, and getting our we have such a big district. It's it's ginormous, Northern California, um, and it's really difficult for for a bunch of small churches that are so far apart to collaborate together. So she started organizing these zone youth nights where Ooh. a bunch of our small churches who have like five to 10 kids in their youth group, like can come together and we can have a large group experience of like 30 or 40 kids. Mm. We can play a big game of dodgeball. We can have like a sermon from the pulpit instead of just small group conversations. And, and, uh, it's a unique opportunity to collaborate, to meet some of the kids that you'll see at camp outside of camp. And so Megan's done a really great job organizing a couple of different youth nights around our, our district to start getting churches to work together and to pool their resources. And it's been nice to be able to be a catalyst for that kind of conversation. It's really exciting. Oh man, that's awesome. And I feel like any any district could implement 
ideas like that even without an, a, an intentional community backing it like a like a list for example of women preachers on your district who are available to, to pulpit supply that kind of thing exactly or or a list of women you could pass on for camp speakers right I guarantee there's so many people who are asked to speak and they can't fulfill a speaking engagement because their schedules too full they can't miss another Sunday but is there is there a woman you could pass the the gig to? Is there a person of color you could pass the gig to? Is there somebody else who needs the opportunity? How can you use your position and your power to further the calling of somebody else? I think that's that's something anyone can do. Mm. I know you have a passion for women in ministry and you have a blog and um, been getting a lot of traction talking about that lately. Why don't you kind of tell me the story of what's been going on? Yeah. So for those who don't know, um, a little bit ago, Sarah Bessie, a Christian author, probably most well known for her book, Jesus Feminist, started a, a conversation on Twitter with the hashtag things only Christian women here. Um, mm. And what's funny is uh, I just one morning I was um, making breakfast, making coffee, scrolling through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, as you do. Yeah. And I caught a sight of this hashtag and started following it. And this is how I know it's bad is I left my breakfast that I'd made sitting on the counter, just pick up my coffee and I start pacing around my kitchen, like scrolling through the hashtag. Mm. And I start like speaking out loud, saying the things that keep coming to my mind. And I'm like, I have some stuff to say about this. I should probably just sit down, write it, uh, post it to the blog. And um, yeah, and at least like for my own peace of mind, just get it onto paper. Yeah. Um, and I just was blown away by how many people responded uh, in in the sense that it felt like for a lot of people, I was speaking their story in a way that they couldn't. Mm. Um, and I, I think that, that that's because I've had some significant time to heal from some of those experiences or those difficult experiences where I'm able to speak from a scar rather than an open wound. Uh, that's maybe language we would borrow from Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been helpful to be able to speak honestly and authentically without being angry or, or bitter, but also to say this is a story that needs to be told. Um, we need to, for the sake of those women who can't speak about their ministry experience because they're stuck in positions where they are unable to speak freely. Um, yeah. I'm in a place where I can speak freely, and and I and I'm excited about that opportunity. Well, just kind of tell me about your uh, experience. What did you write about? Yeah. Uh, so the the things only Christian women here. I think we're so often blind to the kind of sexism that is built into the patriarchal structure of the church. So. Uh, I mean, like growing up, I've already mentioned that it had never really occurred to me that I could I could be a pastor. I I heard things like my brother and I are really close in age. We're only about a year apart. So we went through student ministries together and all that kind of stuff. And I remember folks telling him, you've got such a great story. You'll be a youth pastor one day. And people telling me that I would probably end up married to a pastor. Um, and now I just know I'm called to be a pastor, not married to one. <laughs> yeah. But- not that they're mutually exclusive, but right. <laughs> um, 
Uh, so just just things like that, these sort of assumptions. And again, I'd always been deeply attracted to the church and to theology. And I used to say things like, if I wasn't studying literature, if I didn't want to be a teacher, I would study theology. And I sort of wish that there'd been a more significant pushback when I was young. I mean, people wanted to be encouraging of me, which is great. But I sort of wish somebody had said, well, why don't you? Why don't you just study theology? Yeah. Uh, because I would have said, well, what on earth am I going to do with that? And if I had had somebody to help walk me through that, like, well, of course you could be a pastor. Here, here are plenty of other women that you could look to. Um, but I just was never having those conversations. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think about some of my experiences leading in ministry in the non-denominational world where I thought I knew all the right questions to ask about, are you affirming of women in ministry? Like, is there a place for me here? Um, and I would get, answers like, like, we love women, we so support women, we are raising up young women leaders. But then I would look around at the actual lived out practice. I'd look at who was on the platform. And we'd have one woman on the worship team, and all the preaching pastors would be men. I'd look at the makeup of the elders board and realized like it's written concretely in the church bylaws that elders can only be men. Mm. Um, and then I would I would look at my own lived experiences and that even even when I was being given opportunities to preach, um, I was being asked to filter my work through through the leadership of of male authority. Um, mm. And and while I think that was under the guise of kind of coaching or training or helping, it wasn't really taken seriously that I'd been preaching since I was a teenager, yeah. that I had a significant amount of ministry experience, that I had a significant amount of, of leadership and education and training. And I was never, I was never treated as like a, a colleague or like a co-minister, mm. um, rather just like, like someone who needs to be trained and shaped in a particular way. And also just like thinking about when, when I was given an opportunity to teach a, a class through, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship, a book I'd read before mm. loved had thoughtful things to say was paired with, with a male to, to teach that class. Mm. Whereas I looked around at some of the other classes being taught that, that the, that the other, there were other pairs that were male-male, mm. um, no pairs that were female-female, um, and no, no just sort of single-female single voices. They're always kind of matched with a male voice for balance and, mm. <laughs> and, uh, and diversity, but it just, like, again, in favor of the male voice rather than the female voice. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I, I just felt like, like there was a... There, there was a season where I had stumbled into a church, uh, again, a kind of non-denominational church plant that I felt like had so much potential and energy, and I was caught up in the mission and vision of the church and thought that I could be a voice for, for change, um, but I felt like I was so consistently, like, butting my head up against this invisible wall, mm. like, so much so that I ended up leaving leaving that place a little bit concussed, in a sense, like like a little bit dazed and confused, I started to believe that the way that I was being treated was the way I deserved to be treated. Um, I started to believe that because they treated me like I was young and inexperienced and needed to be monitored and shaped in a particular way that I started to believe that I didn't have a voice of my own to mm. share. Um, it started to lead me to 
into this place of doubt and questioning of my own calling and experience. Yeah. Um, so I'm thankful that I've landed in a place that's been so warm and welcoming and affirming and, and supportive because I've been, I've been able to like recenter and be regrounded in that sense of calling and assurance, mm. um, that God has a call in my life. Um, and it's to preach and to pastor. Mm. Um, after that post, you wrote one that was kind of like what Christian women should hear, like what coaches and colleagues can say, can say, should say, right. Kind of talk me through some of those things. Yeah, I had I had hoped that the arc of I posted three things on the blog kind of in in order, hoping that we could move from this place of here are the things that women are hearing all the time in ministry that you you can't preach like you're you're somehow inferior or that there's just not a space for you here mm. um, indirectly or directly. Uh, in my experience, it was mostly mostly indirect. Like my my experience is is not not that crazy compared to some people who grew up super conservative or just with like such a, a deep rooted complementarianism in their lives. Uh, and for the most part, my experience was with well-intentioned leaders who just didn't realize that some of the things that they were saying or the practices that they had in place were exclusionary to women. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to be able to, to use that platform to say, we love you. We know you're doing the best that you can. Can, but you don't have to be ignorant anymore. There are some ways that we can continue to be better. So I hope that the conversation ultimately had an arc toward hopefulness and um, engagement and positive growth moving forward. So just a couple of things that I personally wish I could have heard myself and know mm -hmm. that lots of other women in ministry wish that they could hear would just be, I'm, I'm sorry, how can we be better? Right. Yeah. When, when, um, when I had tried to share about some of those experiences of, uh, what we might call like microaggressions, mm. um, they were diminished and, uh, swept aside. Oh, it wasn't meant that way. Or, uh, you're overreacting. It's all in your head. Um, so just to say, I'm, I'm sorry that this has been your experience. How can we continue to be better? Yeah. Just to say, uh, to invite women to take leadership roles that they probably aren't considering asking for themselves. Mm. Um, I think there's been significant work uh, with women in the workforce, kind of training and coaching them to ask for the raises that they are working for, ask for the pay that they've earned, ask for more positions in leadership. But I don't think we're doing the same kind of coaching in the church for women. Yeah. Um, and, and we could, I think, learn from those parallel discourses. Uh, I think it's important for us to look around at the women who have bought into the vision and mission and heart of our churches and ministries and are just showing up faithfully, giving so much time and energy and effort because they believe in the mission. Mm. Um, and they're capable and competent, ready to lead, but maybe lack the confidence or the imagination to ask mm. for those positions themselves. And that's, I think, where a mentor can really be a bridge builder and to say, um, to identify potential and then to help the qualified, capable women step into those positions. I think that that we just need to be better about realizing the ways that even our kind of practices can be exclusionary to women. I went to a non-denominational preaching conference um, a couple years ago and realized the speakers were only men. Mm. And then the 
the worship was even led by men. There wasn't even a a, a woman singing on the stage, and oh, wow. I had to do some extra gymnastics just to even like find the right key to sing in to contribute my voice. Mm. Um, and I feel like that's a good metaphor for the way that women are trying to find a space to lead in the church. That there's so many extra kind of gymnastics that they have to do to find a space to fit, mm. um, and it shouldn't be that way. I feel like we could be better about that. Yeah. What are some kind of concrete things that you might say to a pastor, maybe somebody who has a woman on staff but is not sure how to support, encourage? What what kind of advice might you give to that pastor? Yeah, I would say talk to her. Ask her what she needs. I think that's got to be the first place to start to say, what do you need and how can I help? Yeah. Uh, I think also to spend some concrete time understanding the female experience, particularly in the church. Ask your wife, your sister, your mom, your friends, your nieces, like ask the women that you know mm-hmm. um, to tell you honestly what their experience has been like in the church so you can better understand. And from that place of understanding, approach your, your colleagues who are women um, and say, what has your experience been like? What's your experience been like in this particular team, working with me in particular? Uh, and do your best to approach those conversations seeking understanding. Um, and then from that place of understanding, say, okay, how can I help? How can we be better? And I'd also I'd also just say, like, let, let her define those things mm. um, rather than moving from a place of assumption. Language like, tell me about your experience just an open-ended question, uh, let, let her share on her own. Yeah. And then I'd, I'd also say sometimes we assume that people know and are deeply convinced of the things that they're good at and gifted in. Mm. And my experience with women is they tend much more toward a lack of self-confidence mm. or, or they, they just don't have the the same kind of um, positive feedback loop in terms of success and or opportunities and then success to kind of feed into an assurance of, oh, I'm good at that thing. Yeah. So I think if you see that one of your one of your women colleagues is really great at teaching or has like a knack for administrative events or if if you just know that she is in her natural groove like tell her yeah. say like you're so great at that we so appreciate you give her that positive affirmation to let her know that oh yeah, I'm doing that thing that I'm good at, that God has called me to. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I think there's a lot of women who, who just sort of assume this is, this is just me, this is just what I do. And they don't think that it's anything particularly special or, mm-hmm. or significant. So I think be generous with words of affirmation and also be generous with opportunities and connections. I think that, that there's so so often so much of our ministry is done in relational settings. We happen to know someone or, or we have a friend of a friend, uh, somebody we knew from seminary, from school, like all, all of these sorts of connections um, that we can tap into. But often for, for various reasons, one being like the Billy Graham rule and the difficulties of male-female work relationships, yeah. um, women can get excluded from those conversations mm. and just I would say do your best to make sure that women get at the table, not just the conference table, but the coffee table, the kitchen table, the lunch table, like make sure they're there um, Mm. present to be able to speak into the projects you're working on and to just be like collegial colleagues, part 
part of what you're what you're doing and thinking about and working on. I have this this one other story that I like to share just because it's it's funny and a little bit helpful to understand. I remember the the first time I preached with a wireless microphone. I'd shown up to preach, um, and uh, I'd been wearing a dress, obviously, just because yeah. like that's what you do at church. Yeah. Um, and my my mentor at the time had done a lot to kind of coach me through through the process, and he'd helped me talk through the sermon. He was so excited to have me share and had really like made a way for me. And I was so thankful to be there. So stoked to be able to share to my, with my community, um, what God had placed on my heart. It was a Sunday in Advent, which is my favorite time of the year. It, I was so stoked about this, but I show up, he hands me the microphone and I realize there's no place to clip this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wearing a dress. Um, and I, I watch on his face, his face just falls and he realizes he's totally forgot to talk me through this just because it's never been something that he's had to think about. Sure. I guarantee anytime he's shown up to preach, he's worn pants and there's right. been something to clip the microphone on to. And it's just like, so those sorts of things, I tell that story, um, just because ultimately I had to say, it's fine. I'll figure it out. I ended up calling my roommate and asking her to bring me a belt from home on like, so that I could kind of clip the microphone too. Um, I tell that story because so often we have, um, we as women in ministry have awesome, supportive male mentors in our lives who are doing their best to help us. But there's often like roadblocks that they run into that there's stuff that they've just never had to think through. And so it leaves women having to figure it out on their own. And I think that the more we can be open about sharing our experiences and moving from a place of ignorance to a place of understanding, the the more we can continue to create space for women to thrive in ministry. Oh, that's such a good example. I have told many guys that lapel mics are sexist because, <laughs> you know, you just get in there and you're like, what, what am I supposed to, you know... You know, and I inevitably I end up wearing something that doesn't work somehow, and it's just a tragedy. So I love that. That's perfect. I'm sure a lot of women can relate to that story. Um, what what advice might you give to a woman in a a um, less than hospitable situation? How do you how might you kind of coach someone, maybe even a young pastor, let's say, um, in a situation where the leadership is older and maybe isn't quite on the same page, what what advice might you give her in those situations? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. Yeah, I one of the things I wish that I had been able to grasp, I had some folks in my life who were trying to tell this to me. I just couldn't quite wrap my head around this. But what I would want to tell young women who feel stuck in a in a place where they're not supported or that there's no space for them to move forward, I would ask them to remember that our God is a God of abundance, not a God of scarcity. Mm. I think that we can so often be convinced that the opportunity we have is the only one that we're ever going to have. So we mm. can't mess it up. Right? Yeah. I think already opportunities for women in leadership are so few and far between that if you've happened to land one, no matter how bad it is, you're convinced that you have to stay because it's it's the only one that's out there. Mm. Um, and I would just want to say, I don't think that's true. I, I think that there, there are more opportunities than we think that there are. Yeah. Um, and we just have to be willing to say, 
okay, there is this thing that I have, this this leadership position, but it's clearly not a good fit. So what's next? And that takes bravery. That takes trust that there will be something else. That takes a significant like professional network to be able to reach out to, to say, I, I'm in this place where I'm stuck and I need help. Um, so I, I would... I would say, remember that the opportunity you have isn't the only one you're ever going to have. Mm. And it's okay to let it go and, mm. and to step out of a bad situation. I'd also say, dig deep into your professional network, your personal network. Um, look for a place that would be more affirming. I'd also say, seek seek counsel, just because I, I want to be careful about conflating uh just the general difficulties of a workplace with a place that would be what we might call abusive. Mm. Um, so just, just because your job's a little hard doesn't mean that you're necessarily called to leave. I'd say be wise about seeking counsel um, there. And I'd lastly just urge honesty and openness and communication, mm. um, even if it's not received well. For me, that's how I was able to step out of a difficult position um, with my conscience clear because I, I knew that I wasn't having like meetings after the meeting or like side conversations or or anything, but I, I was always as open as I possibly could be with the leadership and and did my best to to work through that way. So none of them were surprised that I wanted to be a pastor. None of them were surprised that I wanted more leadership roles. None of them were surprised that I was seeking ordination or that I was in seminary or all those things. Like I was I was always as open as I could be with the leadership. So when we came to a parting of the ways, it was clear that like the mission and vision of the church and the direction that they were going and then like God's call on my life and where I felt called and moved to be didn't sync up. And so mm. there was a, there was some understanding there rather than being blindsided, I guess. Yeah. What about a, a woman who doesn't feel like she can leave? Man, it's, that's, such a tough place to be. I think that I would I would say um, keep showing up, keep being faithful. Don't underestimate the power of presence and of uh, leaning into what you know God is calling you to do. Mm. Um, and and I think again, just open and honest communication uh, to to continue to ask for opportunities for more chances to lead. And and I would say if you feel if you feel like you lack support, reach out and see if you can continue to build that support among your peers or um, among other mentors or, or find find ways to get other people on your team. So mm-hmm. it's not just you against the world. Yeah. Uh, find find ways to, to build a critical mass. Um, and I'd also say just keep dreaming big. I think so often that women in ministry and in leadership positions in particular are so used to having to compromise or to scale back like what they're asking for to find something manageable and reasonable and middle of the road. Mm. Um, I mean, dream big, ask for the, ask for the biggest opportunity or, or the, the best chance you can think of and then see what happens. Um, I think that's one of the things I'm continuing to learn at this place where I am now, such a loving and supportive community, uh, I keep pitching some ideas or like, like some project stuff. And I keep being met with, we can do better, we can do better for you. Um, And I'm like, Oh, 
I hadn't realized I'd tempered my my request anticipating some pushback, right? Yeah. So be open to the possibility that they could say yes. Yeah. If you ask for the biggest and best dream opportunity you can think of, like mm. they could say yes. Yeah. My experience also is that it's gone better when I have a plan. Mm. Um, if I say, here's what I would like to do, here's how I would accomplish it, here's the team that I would need, um, here's how I think it would be helpful and significant. Um, when you present a, a well-organized plan, people are like, great, that's a great plan. We're on board with that plan. But if you come with some sort of vague idea, like, oh, it might be kind of great if we did this one thing this one time, they'd be like, nah, do we have the money for that? You, you know, there's like a, a lot more pushback if you're just sort of general and vague about an idea. Um, but it's easy to accept an already like really well-developed plan. I love that. Well, you've talked a little bit about your district. Kind of tell me more. I know there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Uh, I love the Northern California district. I've yeah, found a home and a family, a really supportive tribe of other like young, excited, creative pastors. There's a, a solid group of people who are just continuing to dream about what the Church of the Nazarene could be and what it could be like here in our specific context. Mm. Um, we're so excited to welcome uh, some new district staff, uh, Jared and Sophie Callahan, who will be helpful in continuing to further that spark into real kinetic energy of, of movement forward to a focus on youth and, and student ministry, as well as uh, compassionate ministries, uh, more district collaboration, more connections between small churches who can continue to feed into the life of each other. We're really hopeful about welcoming a new DS onto our district and excited about just like I just get the sense that there's so much potential for new growth and life here in Northern California, mm. which is crazy because in our, our area, in the Bay Area specifically, it's one of the most unchurched regions um, of the world. Mm. And uh, I just get this sense that God is on the move and that the Church of the Nazarene could be a part of that. And I'm stoked to, to be here and excited to see what God is going to do around here in Northern California. Ugh, that's so cool. I love it. Kind of tell me the process uh, uh, for someone who might want to be involved in, in the Possibility Project. I know you guys kind of take on new people now and then. Tell me how that works. Yeah, it's a, a rolling admission. So uh, you sign up for a two-year commitment to live in intentional community and to commit about 10 hours of your week to church work, whatever that might be, however God is calling you. That's one of the consistent questions we're always being asked and asking each other. What's God calling you to do and how can you be faithful? Mm. What does that look like? Yeah. Um, so you sign up for to your commitment of intentional living, but we kind of have rolling admission because there's always a cohort that's leaving and a cohort that's coming. Um, and that transition usually happens in the summer. Uh, so if you're interested in applying, you can um, find the Possibility Project on Facebook or find us on the web. I think it's sunnyvalechurch.org. And there's an application process. There will be some questions to answer. Uh, again, we'll just be curious about uh, what God is calling you to do, how you feel God is asking you to bring what you're built to do, uh, your vocation 
to the needs of the world. Uh, how can we support you in that? You'll be put in touch with our director, Jeff Perganan, and he'll do some phone interviews or in-person interviews just to, uh, again, get a sense of what God might be calling you to do and whether this intentional living community would be a good place for that to happen. It's a it's a really exciting opportunity. We we do at the moment have limited space. Again, we just have kind of two houses, uh, so there there's some limited slots there. But but we're hoping and dreaming about um, expanding the project um, in some more ways. Hopefully, with some perhaps some different focuses. Maybe a house that's super justice centered. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe a house that's uh, kind of vocational ministers uh there's so many possibilities (laughs) (laughs) that's great that's great what what would you say to somebody who's thinking about starting an intentional community where they are what i guess like what are the pros cons do's don'ts like would you have any advice for somebody who's thinking i've i could get a big house and put a bunch of people in it yes oh my goodness i would say community sounds amazing and in practice, it's really hard. Mm. It's really hard. Yeah, I, like in in some ways, it's so sweet and so wonderful. We know really deeply how to pray for each other because we've witnessed the stress or the illness or um, the tensions with family members or whatever the case may be. We've witnessed it firsthand because we live together. Yeah. So we know really intimately how to pray for each other. There's there's that deep sense of closeness and shared life. But then on the on the other hand, that like the people who you do church with and do life with are also the people who leave dirty dishes in the sink or have forgotten uh, to take the trash out or whatever the case may be. Um, mm. And I'm reminded of Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount about reconciling with your brother or sister before you bring your gift to to the altar Mm. um before you come to worship be reconciled and make peace with each other and so that's pretty tricky because wednesday and sunday are always coming (laughs) like like there's just not a lot of time where for somebody like me who's a slow processor like if i had a, a roommate conflict with somebody else who wasn't kind of part of my intentional worshiping community i'd leave it a week to just sort of simmer down and then i'd forget about it and we'd move on um but it this sort of consistent gathering to worship together forces us to make peace and to to be constantly working through the messiness of community together it's also kind of tricky because we're all so different. You gather together so many different people. And what you're reminded, though, is that the center of who we are is Christ, that yeah. that we are first and foremost disciples of Christ. And whether we have anything else in common, like that is the anchor that binds us all together. Um, so that's encouraging, too. Uh, I'm being formed and shaped in some really significant and unexpected ways by living in in this kind of deep Christian community that I'm super grateful for. Not to say that it's easy, but it's something I'm I'm really, really thankful for. It's worth it. I, I would say uh, anyone, anyone who can, go for it. Like if, if you're thinking, hey, we have a house, we can invite some people, do it. Uh, at least par- particularly here in the Bay Area, that's one of the biggest obstacles for people coming to to stay um is just housing is so prohibitively expensive so if you're if you're hoping to invite more young people into into the life of 
your church, give them a place to stay. Mm. <laughs> They'll be grateful and um, and then like build those relationships. It it will be really significant, I hope, for your community too. Mm. If someone wants to ask you a question or hear from you or invite you to speak, where can they reach you? How can they find you? Well, you can find me on social media, uh, on Facebook. Instagram is my social media platform of choice. I'm always posting photos of coffee and tacos, uh, of our community garden, uh, those kinds of things. So follow me on Instagram, reach out on Twitter, Facebook. You can email me alicia.mcclintic at gmail.com. And then uh, I have a blog, like we've mentioned, that's aliciamcclintic.com. You can follow along um, and reach out to me there. I'd love to hear from you. Let's be friends. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's been so fun.